Good morning, everyone. What a privilege it is to be here. You may have you may have noticed that I might, I wasn't here last week. Um, anybody notice that? I was. I didn't think so. I'm going to go home now. No. <laughs> no. Uh, you know what? Uh, we had a wonderful vacation, and Lance uh, shared, and I. I came to like a whole laundry list of phone calls and other things. So I haven't watched it yet, but I promise I'll be watching it this week. Uh, but I hear that Lance did a fantastic job last week. Did he a great job? Yeah. Thank you, Lance. Um, and we had a great vacation and uh, went out to the river, um, did some uh, water skiing and wakeboarding and kneeboarding and tubing and all kinds of fun stuff and so it was it was awesome I just I, I love I grew up doing that and I I just living love being out on the on the water and so thank you to some very generous people in our church who were uh, just uh, willing to to gift us with some just true blessings in order that we could make that happen so thank you um, Anyhow, yeah, no, it was fun. I, any, I've been on the out like what, anybody do anything behind boats? There's no, there's like nothing more fun than that, really. Like jumping off cliffs and stuff too. We they have the they have the cliffs there in Parker. So, yeah, it was fun. I didn't jump. I I did my time doing that stuff. Eli did. He he took a he took a big jump. We're in Luke chapter seven today, um, and we're going to be looking at uh, looking at you know. Two weeks ago, we, we, we looked at Jesus performing a miracle, but we saw something that even kind of trumped this physical miracle. It was a greater miracle. And we're going to see that emphasized today with the raising of this widow's son. We're going to see an even greater miracle taking place, something that uh, I pray that we've all experienced. And if we, those of us who have not experienced that miracle, I pray that uh, we would today. So, um, go with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 11. It says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. This is speaking of Jesus. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up, touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God. The great prophet has risen from among us. And God has visited his people. And the report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Our holy and gracious God, we thank you for this beautiful summer morning that you have prepared for us to gather together as your holy church and in communion with your holy church around the world, which you have set aside to honor you this morning. We pray for all believers everywhere that you would be present with them, especially those who are suffering. Forgive us of our sins and prepare our hearts to hear from you as we open the scriptures and bring us peace we pray knowing that our God who created all things is present with us cares deeply for the things that matter to us 
Make us holy as we receive your word this morning and give us understanding. Purify us, sanctify us, and make us holy followers of Jesus. God, we ask that your spirit join us to reveal the truth of the scriptures which give us knowledge of you. And we give this time over to you, humbly submitting our hearts to your voice in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Death is a fact of life, isn't it? We, we all die at some point, and we all suffer the grief of a loved one who has died. If we have lived very long at all, many of us have suffered many of those griefs. Less than a year ago, we all grieved deeply over our dear Christina. Uh, Christina, she, she was perhaps the brightest human light in this church. Her smile lit up the room everywhere she went. Do you remember? And I think few of us can really reflect on the joy that she brought us with dry eyes. We all grieved. I have some close family friends, and one of those is Lucas, who was about eight or nine when I met him. He became like a surrogate son to me when I grew up, and, or when he grew up, rather, as he grew up. And, and then something happened when he was 21. I remember walking into the ICU room with his aunt and his grandmother and letting out this just horribly painful cry as I looked upon his lifeless body. All I could do was cry, but on the inside I was crying, take it back, God, take it back. And I wept uncontrollably. And then I turned to see the nurses at the nurse's station right outside the door. They had heard our cries and had frozen in place, looking toward us, tears also streaming down their faces. And you know, these nurses, they were used to death. They dealt with it weekly, if not daily. But something about our pain had moved these nurses to compassion. And it affected them so internally, so much so that it caused a physical response in them. It made sense to those of us who love Lucas that we would grieve. But the compassion of these nurses was extraordinary. This morning we were... We're going to see the God of all authority who spoke all of creation into existence and who pronounced the judgment of death as a result of sin. And we see him being moved deeply with compassion at the sight of this grieving widow. And like last week, we see Jesus exercise his authority over life and death, but we also see him produce a profoundly more significant miracle. We'll see that we also may be recipients of that great miracle. So keep your finger there in Luke chapter 7. We'll be there all morning, and we'll flip around a little bit. But uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 11, it says, Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with them. And because verse 11 begins with soon afterwards, we got to go backwards, right? It's important that we go back and look what we're following. You'll remember that Jesus preached a very profound sermon that was uh, similar uh, and along the lines of the Sermon on the Mount, which you read about, very famous sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then two weeks ago, we see him return to Capernaum, where he encounters a centurion whose servant was deathly ill. You'll remember that. I'll go ahead and read it for you. Luke 7, verse 1. 
After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews and asked him, or asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he, he loves our nation, and he is, at the, he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed, uh, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Aside from the humility and faith of the centurion, the key thing that we noticed was that the great miracle in the section wasn't the healing. It was that Jesus heard the intercession of the centurion and met him with compassion. Often we sort of take this Sunday school idea that we're saved because we ask Jesus to come into our hearts. And it isn't that the Spirit of God doesn't dwell with us. Of course He does. When we repent and we place our trust in Jesus, He dwells within us. The Spirit dwells within us. But I think we can often take the presence of God in our lives for granted because of how we communicate it often sometimes. I, I would push back on any gospel presentation that doesn't address sin and hell and repentance. Please don't just tell somebody to ask Jesus in their heart. Throughout the New Testament, the call to salvation is a call to repentance from sin. Our faith is not just a cute little Jesus club, but it's a recognition that we are hopelessly depraved sinners in desperate need of a Savior who has the authority to take our sins upon himself and apply his righteousness to us. And so what we can take away from the previous account is that the way that Jesus interacts with us and is present with us is far more significant than any miracle of nature that he would perform. So Jesus leaves, leaves Capernaum. He travels to this little call, town called Nain, about a 25-mile journey southwest, and all their Harleys were in the shop, so they had to hoof it. They had to be on foot. Now, Pastor Clint and I, we we debated whether or not this journey could be done in a day. And here's the thing. Clint hikes way more than I do, so I would be inclined to trust him when he says that that's just too, way too far to do in one day. But I have the trump card. I pulled it up on Google Maps. And it's about 10 hours walking. And I know some people in my life they can easily spend 10 hours walking around the mall with bags hanging on them and stuff like that. So, listen, I don't really know how long it took Jesus um, and the disciples and the crowd to get there. I, you know, um, they would have been used to being on foot. They were probably in way better shape than most of us, us are. But they also had horrible footwear back then, so I don't know. Um, either way, they show up in Nain. 
Jesus is traveling with a posse. It's the first place Luke distinguishes between disciples and the crowds. I don't know what to make of that, um, but it seems to be significant there. And we'll, we'll unpack that a little more as we go through Luke. But Nain, the word Nain means, means pleasantness or beauty. That's a picture of modern day Nain. Um, and it's kind of on a little bit of a hill. Um, and there's a great view with some rolling pastures to the west. Uh, there's this series of uh, burial caves and tombs, which is probably where this funeral procession was headed when Jesus happened upon it. And as it says in verse 12, and as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a, consider, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And verse 12 continues to set up the context here. This dead guy is being carried out, and we learn that he's an only son, and that his mother is a widow. This is significant. First off, it's not her first rodeo. She'd already buried her husband. Now she's burying her only son. And I have to believe that Luke thought about how he would end his gospel when he wrote this. Like that God himself would witness with approval the death of his only begotten son on the cross. We often neglect the emotional piece of this when, we, when it comes to God since God already knows the end. But no, that doesn't make him... He, we're created in his image. He is an emotional being. And so we think of him when we imagine what this woman may be feeling. And to add to that her social condition, she didn't have a husband to meet her needs because he had died and now her son is gone and he's the only one. And, and women back then didn't have the same vocational freedom uh, as men. She could just go out and get a job and work to make up the difference. So there would be nobody to care for her once this estate dried up, however much that might be. And, and that's why one of the most important objects of justice in the New Testament is the widow. James 1.27 says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Most likely this funeral procession is taking place within about a 24-hour period of this man's death. Um, you know, when I was in New York, um, my grandfather kind of came to the end of his life, and he, he and I had been extremely close. Um, I'm the, I was the oldest grandson, and, and uh, he and I, you know, when, when I was living here towards the end of his life, before we moved to New York for a while, he, we were just very close. I saw him usually a few times a week. But my aunt had called to let me know that it was time for him to be on hospice care. And so I immediately got on an airplane back out uh, to Southern California. And, and, and Grandpa was waiting for me. I think he, he knew he had to wait for me to say goodbye. And I arrived that evening and I sat with him. And a few hours later, I fell asleep on the couch just a few feet away as I could listen to his lungs filling with fluid. And just a few hours after that, my aunt woke me to let me know that he was gone. And I went over and I kissed his forehead and somehow fell back asleep peacefully knowing where he was. But it wasn't until the next morning when they came to pick up the body that I, that I broke. As I watched Grandpa's lifeless body being wheeled out the door, I think I cried harder than I had since I was a kid. 
You know that cry where you like take this like deep breath and you just, and you can't even let it out? That's how I imagine this woman's grief. That, that wide open mouth, unable to breathe, silent cry until finally it comes out as a loud scream. And you know how it is, you go outside, the sun's up. Does, does the sun even know? If, if only nature knew that grandpa was dead, the sun would bury itself in the clouds and cry a flood of great raindrops. Why does the rest of the world seem to just go along as normal? How can they not know what a dark and a horrible day in history this is? If only they knew, nothing will ever be the same. There should be an earthquake. Why can't everyone stop to see what the world has lost today? I'm sure many in here know that feeling. And you know this considerable crowd present, it doesn't necessarily imply that the widow had a strong support network. In fact, the word can just mean adequate, and maybe it was just enough people to carry the body. And even if she did have a support network, imagine that feeling of now I get to be everyone else's charity case. You see, when we study the scriptures, we need to live in the text. And when we live in the text, we start asking these questions. We start identifying with the people. How, how did the widow's son die? What happened? Was he ill? Was, was, it, was he in some kind of industrial accident? Maybe it was an overdose or a stroke or, or, or a suicide. Manner of death might also influence how the mother would grieve too, right? Like... With illness, she may have possibly been a little bit more prepared. An industrial accident would be sudden. It would come as a shock. Grief, grief over a drug overdose can present itself of anger. Some of us know that pain. Suicide could have resulted in feelings of intense guilt. So why are we camping out on the woman's grief here? It's because this is where Jesus meets her with his compassion. And that's a bigger deal than his power to raise a physically dead person to physical life. Like, how often do we kind of look down our noses at people whose struggles seem to be visibly messier than ours, right? Like, we see stuff on the news and social media, we kind of scoff at it. Oh, looks like he got what's coming to him. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, you get what you pay for. And listen, I'm as guilty as anyone, but whenever we do that, we keep ourselves from responding with the heart of Jesus. This young man most likely died as a result of something he had a little control over, but even if he had tried to, you know, I don't know, do a backflip on a Harley or shoot himself into the air in a homemade rocket to prove that the earth is flat, you know, that, this actually, some guy actually did that, right? Do you think for a second that Jesus would respond with any less compassion? Regardless of the circumstances of the death, Jesus comes and he compassionately deals not only with this woman's emotional state, her grief, but also with her vulnerable social condition. Verse 13, it says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Now up to this point, we've been setting the stage for what Jesus would do. And, and 
And in this text, the context is probably the most important piece because it, it sets us up to see the character of Jesus and how he's going to respond to all of this. And the first thing we're told is that he saw her he, and he had compassion on her. That word comes from a Greek word that's, that's very difficult to pronounce, but it's a very weighty word. It deals with the kind of compassion that has a physical effect on somebody, like those nurses I told you about, right? The grief of the people who loved Lucas caused these nurses to stop what they were doing and, and drew tears from their eyes. In the same way, Jesus was moved to compassion. What he was witnessing caused a physical response in him. I wonder if he heard the mother's cry before he even saw her. I wonder if the group that he was with was just walking and laughing and carrying on as they traveled and when they were stopped dead in their place and silenced by the sad and heartbreaking sight before them. I wonder if Jesus looked into this woman's eyes and his, and his lower lip began to quiver. I wonder if he was doing everything he could to hold his own tears in. How, how can we emulate the compassion of Jesus? Well, Paul answers that in part by saying in Romans 12, 15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What grief, what grief have you borne which Christ was not also moved by? Maybe it was a simple breakup or loss of a job. Those can hit us hard, right? Jesus was there. What, perhaps it was a rejection letter from your dream college, your dreams fading, and Jesus was there. Was it the loss of a spouse or a child? Jesus was there. Maybe it was that phone call that your only child had messed up big time, and the next time you would see her, she would be behind glass in an orange jumpsuit. What grief have you borne? that Jesus was also not moved by. And maybe Jesus didn't even fix it. As hard as you prayed, as willful as you believed, Jesus decided not to remove your grief at the time. Don't say that he didn't perform a miracle. He did. The authority, the God of all authority who effortlessly spoke the cosmos into existence by his great authority and power heard your prayer. And he had compassion. And he was present with you in his grief. That's a greater miracle than even raising someone from the dead. Even when God answers our prayers the way that we pray them, the greater miracle is that he hears them in the first place. When Jesus told this widow mother not to weep, he wasn't dismissing her grief. He didn't say, oh, don't cry. He's in a better place. And don't read this as if the woman was doing something wrong by grieving. No, she wasn't. It's normal to grieve. It's right to grieve because that's a part of love. Most of the time, Jesus doesn't tell us not to grieve. He lets us grieve because he's not going to take the grief away in an instant. 
Instead, he's going to be present with us in it. And he told this woman not to cry because he was going to take away her grief in that moment. Only Jesus has the power and authority to turn this woman's weeping to joy. Psalm 3011 says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, and you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And in turning the woman's weeping to joy, he was revealing how his mission would ultimately be made complete in the end for all of us. Isaiah 25, 8 says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Look at the, the authority of the spoken word of God. He has the authority to give life to that which was dead. Revelation 7 17 says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And in Revelation 21, 4, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The real miracle here is that Jesus was present with this woman in her pain. That he gave her future hope of a cosmos where there is no such thing as grief. Luke 7, 14, it continues. Then he came up and touched the, the buyer and the bears stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The real miracle was his presence in her pain. He heard her cries. He had compassion that moved him. And he touched the buyer. And the buyer's kind of like, what it is, is it's kind of like this open coffin. It's, it's more than a stretcher, but it's not quite a whole coffin. And Jesus touched it, which actually, if you remember, it's kind of like touching the leper, right? It would put him at risk of becoming ceremonially ceremonially unclean because under under Jewish ceremonial law it would declare one who would touch a dead body to be unclean so there's a whole process to to be cleansed from that but Jesus was present in this woman's pain and he touched the buyer in which her son her dead son was laid and the pallbearers stopped and Jesus spoke Jesus was there and Jesus was there when I discovered that in this life, I would never hold my precious baby girl, Caroline. And the words to that old Casting Crown song that we sung earlier flooded my soul. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down, wiped my tears away, stepped in and saved the day. And once again, I say amen. And it's still raining. But as the thunder rolls, I barely hear you whisper through the rain, I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I'll raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. Even had Jesus intervened and raised my baby girl from the dead, that miracle would pale in comparison to the real miracle 
that he would be present in my grief. That he was right there with me, weeping as my every tear fell onto his strong shoulder. Maybe you're here in the sanctuary this morning, or you're watching online, or you're listening to the podcast, and you're praying for a miracle, and you're afraid, or you're grieving. Your hope of a miracle is fading, or maybe from what you see, there was no miracle. Do you believe that Jesus is who the Bible teaches that he is? Who he says he is? If you do, he answers our prayers better than we can ask. And, if, and, and you, you have your miracle. The great miracle is that he hears your prayers, that he is present in your pain. creator of the universe cares for you is a greater miracle than mere reanimation. In fact, the guy that Jesus rose from the dead is now going to have to die a second time at some point. This passage deals with a man's physical life and death, but also points to an eternal principle of life and death. Look at this in John 11. John 11, 25. And 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks. In the eternal sense, death does not mean a loss of awareness. We don't just cease to exist. Death is a separation from Christ. In John 1, 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So in light of that, in light of the fact that darkness is the absence of light, we can say that death is not so much the opposite of life as it is the absence of life. Bear with me on this. In the physical sense, when I die, my body's still here. What's gone is the life. My life has left me. So I'm not in the opposite state of being alive so much as my body is absent of the life that it once had. And to be alive in Christ means to have eternal life because Jesus is life and the light of humanity. To die in a state of unrepentance is to continue into eternity without life. You're in an eternal state of death that is absent of life, which is a state of torment. Look at how Jesus illustrated this. Luke 16. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. And, and we'll unpack this a whole lot more when we get to Luke 16 uh, in a few months. But here it is, Luke 16. Starting in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who, was, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table moreover even the dogs came and licked his sores the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and he called out father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame 
But Abraham said, child, remember that if you, that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. Uh, it's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We're going to spend a lot of time unpacking that passage later as we move on in Luke. But what distinguishes this from a mere parable is that Jesus identifies the subject by name. So we can see that this passage, we can see it as an actual event rather than a mere allegory or metaphor. The rich man in the story was being tormented while a man named Lazarus was in a place of comfort. That's the picture of life and death. Right? It gives us a picture of our consciousness after we physically die. Lazarus has eternal life, and the rich man does not have life, but is tormented instead. Because in the end, we're also told that we will be physically raised and perfected bodies. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6.14 says this, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And that's why Paul spoke of dead believers often as sleeping. Right? First Corinthians, or I'm sorry, First Thessalonians chapter 4, First Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is all because Jesus is the life. We are made alive in him, which means that those who are not in him are absent of life, although they have a physical life now. We were dead in our sin before Christ gave us life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. This, this ought to be highlighted in your Bibles if it's not. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7, it says, And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the art, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that if we're alive we might consider ourselves dead to sin. That's why I say death is the absence of life. If we're 
dead to sin, sin is absent in us. Romans 6, 10 through 12, it says, for, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ in Christ Jesus, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Since darkness and light cannot dwell in the same space, if you live in sin, that is space in which Christ is absent. John Owen famously wrote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. We can put our sin to death knowing that Christ took upon himself our sins by dying on the cross. And because Christ was raised to life, we know that he has authority to give life. I've often heard of salvation presented as Christ rescuing us. Like we're out drowning in our sin and Jesus throws out a life preserver just hoping that we're going to grab on and, and allow him to pull us to safety. Thing is, is the Bible doesn't tell us we were in peril. The Bible tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't drowning. We were drowned and dead. And a dead person cannot cling to a life preserver. Salvation is a much, much bigger miracle than a mere rescue. It is making alive that which was dead. It's not a rescue or even a resuscitation. It is regeneration. I think a metaphor that's more consistent with the New Testament would be that I was a bloated corpse down at the bottom of the sea and Jesus dove in. He came to where I was at and he touched me. And by his great compassion, he raised me up and breathed his life into me that I may live eternally. The work is all his. And all I have left is but to fearfully recognize his great authority and worship him. Verse 14 of Luke 7. Then he came up and touched the buyer and the bears stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And then in verse 15 it says, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. You remember that scene in The Lion King? where Mufasa was trampled by the wildebeests and Simba, his son, is like pushing on his face, begging him to get up. It's like the saddest cartoon scene ever. Like, why would you? You made a cartoon that made us all cry. Why did you do this? Right? And Mufasa, he would never get up because he was dead. And some of us have been there, like, right? Just begging our loved one to wake up. Jesus commanded the young man to get up, and he did. Can you, can you imagine that? Like, imagine that. He just gets up and starts talking. Someone who was dead submitted to Christ's authority. Even, even death must submit to the authority of Jesus. We are dead in our trespasses of sin and sins, and a rescue will do no good. And all that human authority can offer at that point is a recovery effort. And resuscitation will do no good if someone's completely dead. You see that new little contraption? It's so cool. You can put it over a choking victim's face and, and just suck out the obstruction. 
Have you seen that? So cool. Every restaurant should have this. It is awesome. And it's a really, really cool device, but it won't be a, it will do a dead person a bit of good. It's often very difficult for us to accept our utter helplessness. We want to say that somehow we cooperated with God in our salvation, but our participation is to do the only thing that's possible to do when Christ commands a dead person to be alive, and that is to be alive. We can't choose to remain dead at that point, nor, nor would we even want to, because he has made us alive. How could we choose death if Christ has made us alive? Jonathan Edwards put it this way. Well, he's reported as having put it this way. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. In fact, it's not clear that he actually said that or not. We don't know. But it probably comes from a statement uh, by Philip Melanchthon who said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Can you imagine this guy getting up? Just think about it. Imagine. You know me. I, I have a bit of a twisted sense of humor, right? You figured this out by now. Um, and if I wasn't a loving Christian, I probably would like to prank people even after I die. Because I love things that are funny. And though this wouldn't be funny to most people, I, I thought it would be kind of a hoot to engineer a special casket at one time. That, and then during my funeral service, I would just kind of sit up and my head would turn to the congregation. <laughs> like, don't, I mean, now if I really did something like that, how would people react? Like, I don't know if anybody would be laughing. They don't have heart attacks, right? Because that's not very funny. It's just mean. There'd be like one guy laughing in the back and everybody else would be like clutching their chests, right? Like, Think about this. If I'm dead and laying in a coffin and I just sit up and look at you, that is a life-altering prank, right? I would never do that because I love you. And I just, so I won't put that in my will. I promise, okay? In reality, it would be more mean than funny, right? I would never do something like that. Before you put me in a padded room, okay, I have a reason for sharing that weird thought. Um, Look at this in verse 16. It says, fear sees them all. It says, fear sees them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Now in this section, Luke gave us the context. He described the event and now he's dealing with the reaction to that event. Okay. These were not a bunch of ignorant Neanderthals. They were sophisticated enough to know when somebody was dead. And Jesus told the dead guy to arise, and the dude sat up and started talking. Think about this, guys. Dead. Done. Sits up and starts talking. Right? Like, before you criticize these people for being terrified, think of my dead corpse sitting up and turning its head to look at you. Right? That's terrifying. I'm surprised nobody had a massive heart attack when this guy sat up. If it wasn't terrifying, Stephen King would be a very poor man. Right? The the reason Pet Cemetery is a scary movie is that dead animals, and especially dead people, coming back alive, 
conjures up our greatest fears, right? Some of us, some of us like scary books and movies. In fact, there's a Christian author by the name of Frank Peretti, who author actually writes along those lines, but from a Christian worldview, because even Christians like that genre. We like to be startled and scared sometimes, right? Some of us. And the nice thing about those kinds of novels and movies and weird imaginative things is that they are fiction, right? None of us wants to witness any of that in real life, do we? But this funeral party, they did witness that in real life. Just, just as when we see people witness other miracles, their well-placed fear informed their theology. They realized who they were dealing with. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, this was a normal response of the crowds when Jesus performed a miracle. They were terrified and yet they glorified God. Why? Because they knew that they had just witnessed something only God could do. By the way, if you ever take my ideas, don't blame me, okay? I said I would never do it. Not only had these people encountered a great prophet, but he was bigger than that. They these people had an encounter with the everlasting God of the universe who visited them, who was present with them. And his giving of life to that which was dead had a profound effect on them. They were touched by God's authority. Have you been touched by God's authority? Fear's not... Fear is not bad when it's rightly placed. When we see Christ's power and his authority, fear is, fear is not unreasonable. That fear ought to cause a reverent response that worships him. How do we bring glory to God? What is worship? Well, one of the results of the worship in this case with these people is that the reports about Jesus spread like if you saw a dead guy get up and start talking you might not keep that to yourself right but you have you if you are a christian you have witnessed that in this report it says in verse 17 about him spread the whole world of Judea and all, or through the whole world of Judea and the surrounding country. If you see a dead guy sit up and start talking, you're going to respond to that. But if you're a Christian, you have seen such a miracle. You have seen the dead raised to life. I have seen the dead raised to life. If it were not so, I would not be standing here today. I would be pursuing all my desires that were absent of life. I would not be preaching because my preaching is a result of Christ's miraculous authority to give life to that which was dead. And that was me. I was dead in my trespasses and sins and he gave me life. This man's healing, his being raised from the dead, that, that was only temporary. If it wasn't, he would probably be a pretty popular guy right now. Like just hitting 100 years old is 
pretty impressive. Can you imagine, this was like 2,000 years ago, if he was still alive, can you imagine a 2,000-year-old guy walking around? We would know who he was. I'm sure, right? And can you imagine the arthritis at 2,000 years old? That would be horrible, right? 47, I already have it. Jesus met this widow who had lost her son and and gave this temporary solution. He relieved her of her pain temporarily. But the real miracle was that he met her and he heard her cries. For those of us that know Jesus, we have experienced the greatest miracle. And it's a permanent miracle. We were dead and have been made alive by the authority of our great Savior. Maybe you've not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus. Maybe you hear that command of Christ right now. Arise. You know, in the end, you will obey the command of Christ. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in some way. Listen, if, if you don't know Jesus, know him this morning. Be alive. Please, if you hear the call of Christ this morning, please see one of us. See, see Pastor Clint. Or myself, Lance is back there. He would love to pray, pray with you. Any of our leaders here, my wife, Denise. See the person maybe who invited you here today. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know life, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins, surrender to Jesus. We recognize this morning the great authority of Jesus. And with the rest of us, Fear him and honor him and respond to his call. Let's pray. Our holy God, we surrender our pain and our sorrows and our fears to you this morning. Forgive us, O God, for neglecting to see that great miracle of your presence and compassion as we ask for the lesser miracles of healing and provision and the like. Thank you, O God, for forgiving us of our sins and for regenerating us into new creatures by the blood of Jesus and sustaining us with your Holy Spirit. God, we ask that you would help us to see the great miracle of your favor, your grace, as we enter this week wrestling with our flesh and struggling to resist sin. Every last one of us desperately needs grace. God, let us see the life that you have given us. Help us to understand how we have been raised from death to life in Christ Jesus. And deliver us from the evil one who would seek to distract and to destroy us. We offer ourselves over to you, O God, as creatures created to worship you in everything that we do. And we ask that you would give us strength in giving us the grace that we have been given and in spreading that to others and making your name known as we enter our mission field. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.